to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Oxford Dictionary, but year by year they have a Word of the Year competition, which is kind of exciting and kind of terribly not at the same time. Now, in 2016, here were some uh, uh, of the finalists. It's going to come on the screen, so if he's going to help me out. Now, I don't know if you, you can see this very well, but let me navigate for you. Uh, in the middle, you have, in the yellow, uh, the rise of the term adulting which is disastrous, uh, and is defined as a practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of mundane tasks. Go, talk, go look hashtag adulting, it'll destroy your faith in humanity a little later. Uh, down the bottom, in the purple, you have chlorophobia, which is the extreme or irrational fear of clowns. Now, I don't know what happened in 2016 about clowns. Uh, why is this risen to fame in a particular year? I'm not really... Sure. My favorite for the winner is actually top, uh, top right, uh, the, the orange, Heig, which is a Danish term for the coziness and comfortable conviviality that engenders a feeling of contentment or well-being. Then we all just need a little bit more of that. But on the next slide, you'll see that the next, uh, the actual winner of Word of the Year was Post-Truth. Uh, if you look on the next slide, uh, you can actually see a graph of this across the entire year. It grew and peaked in both June and towards October and November. Across the events of Brexit and the U.S. election, the term post-truth has kind of exploded in our vocabulary and become an important reality in our world. Now, here's what post-truth is. Circumstances in which objective facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Right, 2016 was the day that facts began to die. And in the public realm, appeals to raw emotion, raw disappointment, raw discontent have risen in power. We live in a post-truth World, apparently, where hearsay and opinion have more power than what is actually true in reality. I met someone in Camperdown just recently, and I asked them the question, like I ask some people sometimes, if there was one thing you could change about the world, what would it be? His answer was, clarify what is truth and what is hearsay. Make truth the clearest thing. Now, to me, this is fascinating because we've been on a complicated journey with the truth as a culture. On the one hand, we are suspicious of objective truth and particularly of people who push narratives on us and say this is true for everyone and we feel our individuality kick back against it. We've been talking about the subjectivity of truth, that it's true for me and doesn't need to be true for you. And yet we've ended up in this world where we're just like, actually, some things are just true. Some things actually happen the way they happen, and it doesn't matter about your opinion about it. Give me back some facts. We're in, this, we're in a world with a complicated relationship to the truth. And often that leaves us feeling 
anxious and fearful about both the state of our world and how it is we might navigate through it. Now tonight, I want us to let Jesus speak into that. And specifically, as we look through Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30, page 966, I want to think about three challenges of truth in our culture, in our age, and what it is that Jesus has to say about them. Three challenges. I think the first challenge of truth in our age is where truth meets power. Now, if one thing is true of my education, high school, uh, after that, secondary, all that, is that every truth has some sort of power lurking behind it. And that your job is to discern what kind of power play is being pushed on you by certain articles, by certain truths, by certain tweets. You know, Foucault said that truth of any culture is a regime. It is a style of constraint. He spoke of truth as a weapon of the elite used to violently push down others. Derrida said that it is impossible anymore to state truth without doing violence to people. And we know this, don't we? We live in a world where conspiracy theories are ripe, where we expect big corporations to hide scientific secrets from us because they're trying to make money. And behind everything, we see alternate facts and fake news to fit agendas And we're constantly looking around suspiciously, trying to work out what the power play is and how we can get around it. Where truth meets power is one of the great challenges of our age. And yet, this uh, instinct I've been taught, I feel, to be suspicious of the power behind every truth actually isn't a very good solution. Because in the end, I'm just violently attacking every truth I see in the same way they're trying to attack me. I'm just part of the problem in the end. How is it that truth and power can work? What we read here in verse 25 is Jesus speaking about truth and power in a way that inverts both. Jesus, addressing his Father, whom he calls the Lord of heaven and earth, says this, I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus says, Father, you're great because you have inverted truth and power in this world. Jesus' truth, the thing He brings into the world, is not owned by the wealthy. It's not owned by the significant. It's not owned by the powerful. It's not a weapon laid into their hands. Instead, the Heavenly Father reveals it instead to the insignificant, to little children, to the unempowered, to the not necessarily intelligent, to the insignificant parts of this world. It is not held by the powerful. He is not Tom Cruise, and this is not Scientology, basically. right? You don't buy your way to the truth at the top. You don't maneuver your way through your power to get there. Here is truth not used as a violent weapon, but given like a gift. Because that's what revelation in the end is, isn't it? When you sit down across uh, from someone in a pub 
and they tell you a little bit of their story. When you sit across someone in a lecture and the same thing happens, when you stumble into someone as they have a tear down their cheek, they tell you a little bit about what's making them sad. When they reveal who they are, it's a gift. It's them giving to you a little bit of who they are. And, and what Jesus sees about his father is that that is the way that he reveals truth, like a gift. A gift not owned by the powerful. In verse 26, he says, yes, father, for this was your good pleasure. You see, God, our father, doesn't reveal truth in a way to constrain and control us. He reveals himself as a gift to set us free. And so Jesus inverts the use of power and truth. Indeed, later on he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. He does not wield truth in the way we expect someone of power to do. But the second challenge we see about truth, and this is one you just know from being out in the world, really, is that all the truth that we know is in some way limited by the fact we're human. You know, I grew up in a particular part of Sydney on a particular leafy street with two doctor parents, right? That has established my view of the city. I'm limited by that. I find it hard to see outside of that perspective that I've grown up in, just because I, can't, I haven't been in every suburb. I haven't grown up in every suburb. I grew up in one. And so my view of the truth is in some way of what Sydney is, is limited. And you see, when we take that fact and we kind of throw it in the air a little, we start thinking, well, if we're all just limited human beings without perspective, then how is it that we can arrive at greater truth? If everything is so fragmented and everything lacks a whole, then how do I trust other people's claims when they're as broken as my own? What do we do with the limitations of truth? Because what Jesus says next uh, is actually something a bit counter-cultural to that. He claims both a holistic and exclusive access to a type of truth. Have a look. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He exclusively claims to know the Father, whom he calls Lord of heaven and earth. And he claims that that involves all things. A total view. It's at this point that we might look at Jesus and say, well, you're just like me. You grew up in Nazareth, not you know, my suburb. How is it that your vision of the truth is more whole and can help me? How do I trust that? How do I deal with that? But really, if you look at Jesus' claim here of an exclusive knowledge of his Father, that's not actually that strange. We all, in our own way, whether good or bad, have an exclusive knowledge of our parents, don't we? I mean, let me take this for example. My father was a cancer specialist, an oncologist. He worked in understaffed public hospitals his whole life. So many people knew him and were treated by him, right? Uh, And I know they liked him because they used to give me presents, right? There was this one guy who my dad helped particularly, um, and he was very disappointed that I didn't know how to fish, and so he bought me a fishing rod, right? I didn't treat him with cancer, but he gives stuff to me. But the reality is, is that though uh, a lot of people have, know my father as the oncologist, they know him as the, the cancer treater, and they know his kindness in that way, it's, it's only me who knows him as a son. I know what it's like for him to be a father in a way they never will. I know what it was like for him to teach me how to do algebra. 
and deal with anger and stress and how to deal with a broken bone. And uh, he taught me how to see the world and how to treat people I didn't like and who didn't like me, right? I have an exclusive claim on his fatherhood because I experienced it firsthand. I'm his son. Maybe my sister as well, together, we have an exclusive claim on knowing our father and our mother, whether good or bad. So what Jesus is saying here really isn't that far-fetched. He claims an exclusive knowledge of his father. It's just that his father, who he claims, is in fact the God of all things. And we might know him because we've seen the stars in the sky and we know the depth of the human soul and the intricacies of the human earth. But he says, you don't know him like I know him because I'm his son. And I know him as a father. And he's given all things into my hand. In some ways, what Jesus claims is not outlandish. If he is the only son of the infinite father, then he has an exclusive knowledge into who that is. You see, the the reality with the word limitation is maybe it's the wrong word. Rather than being limited, what we have toward the truth is a certain relationship. You know, I have a certain relationship to the city of Sydney because of the suburb I grew up in. Not a limitation, but a particular relational perspective. Maybe it's not that we need to be able to see the whole picture, but we need to come into the right relationship to understand the truth. And what Jesus opens for us here is that at the heart of the universe is not an equation or a system or simply intellectual thought, although they are all involved. At the center of the universe is a father and a son. And so to know and interact uh, in this universe, is to know that Son and what He says about the Father. Truth is not seeing everything in its right place, but overcoming our limitation is about knowing the right person. The Lord Jesus and the Father He makes known. But the third challenge I think we face with truth, and this is the day-to-day normal one really, is at the end of the day, you have to walk out that door and make some decisions. You have to anchor your understanding of the world and decide what is true and what's false, what is hearsay and what is fact. You actually have to go out and do that. And the problem is, it's really hard. I find that hard enough to do on my Facebook feed, trying to discern the power moves of my different friends. (laughs) and trying to understand what on earth is going on there in the different news articles that Facebook thinks I'm interested in. Because what our culture pushes on us is that at the end of the day, the anchor that you have for truth is yourself. You have to discern the power plays. You have to discern what is right and what is wrong. You have to discern what is true and what is false. And it places that on us. And the reality of that is that it is absolutely exhausting, burdensome, and weary. It's at that point that Jesus calls that out, actually. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He doesn't really get specific there, but he talks about this deep weariness that comes upon us as humans in a complicated world. 
And he's not just talking of a physical tiredness that comes from a long day or a large gym session or a long run. It's a deep soul weariness. It's something you feel in your bones. It's the kind of thing you get from all the little lies that your friends tell you that build up over time and wound you and your trust in them so you're not sure if you can continue with them. It's the kind of weariness that comes from constantly trying to hide things from the people you love the most. It's the thing that comes from stepping out into the world and being told that you are the anchor and you have to constantly discern what is right and wrong and you don't know how. It comes from the fact that, that our, our, our culture tells us that before us was this black nothingness and after us is this black nothingness. And so you've got this moment and you better anchor your life and discern what's true, otherwise you'll miss it and it's gone. It's that pressure pushed, pushed on us that leaves us deeply weary like desperate ships in need of a haven, a harbor, and an anchor. And and to that weariness, the Lord Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. You know, what a yoke is on screen is, uh, you know, for a human, there are human yokes and animal yokes. And Jesus is talking, I think, about human yokes. And what a human yoke does is make the task easier. You go down to the river and you have two buckets and they're both heavy. And so the way to get back up is to put a yoke on your back so the task is simpler. Yokes are supposed to make things easier, the bearing of everyday life less complicated. But the reality is that yokes are only as good as the task that you're given. And you can take on an impossible yoke for yourself, too much, that you can't handle. And Jesus says, you know that yoke you have on your shoulders where you are the anchor? Why don't you take mine instead? Why don't you learn from me? Why don't you learn from the truth that I have? Why don't you learn from the Father whom I know? Because when you do that, do you know what it is? It's like your ship coming into harbor. It's like the exhaustion abates. It's like you can deal with the complexity and and the uh, difficulty of this world. This is a truth that doesn't start with an equation or a system. Uh, It starts with seeking and asking because it's not about seeing a clear truth. It's about coming into right relationship with someone and starting to see the world by holding their hand and walking with them and letting them show you what they see so that it's not on your shoulders to discern all the time. Jesus' invitation is to let ourselves stop being the anchor and let him be the anchor instead. And to learn to be discipled by him in how to walk in a complicated world. You see, ultimately, the Christian faith, because it's not a system or an equation or a thought pattern, uh, because it's a way of life, to really understand it, to really taste it, you have to take the yoke on your own shoulders. You have to go in the inside. You have to start learning from the master. You have to start holding his hand and asking. It's only when you start to experience him in that way that you can really see whether his yoke is easy and light and whether with his eyes for what's true, 
flourishing and peace flow rather than burdens, wearisome, and pain. So what Jesus says about truth is that he inverts the power-truth paradigm. He says, don't call them limitations. Talk about relationship. And let's talk about the relationship that I have with my father. And then he says, ultimately, you need to change your anchor. Let it be me and not yourself. But as we conclude, I think the problem we have with this is that in the end, it's very hard to get rid of that suspicion we feel in our hearts toward people who make claims like this. Who claim that it will be easier if we have him and not someone else. How is it that you know you can trust Jesus to come through with what he is promising? And I think for that, you have to actually go to the end of his story. Jesus walks to Jerusalem. Uh, He ends up being accused and is on trial before Jewish Sanhedrin and then the Roman governor. And on the one hand, you have the objective facts, his innocence, his lack of crime, the lack of evidence against him. And on the other hand, you have a, a crowd whipped into a complete angerous frenzy calling, shouting, yelling for his blood. And what happens in the life of Jesus is that his fate is determined by post-truth, by an appeal not to objective fact, but to the emotion. And Jesus is ultimately crushed by false truth and nailed to a cross despite the facts and the evidence that say he should be in the clear. And he does that in order that we might actually know the truth again. That we might actually have a light burden. That we might actually be able to walk hand in hand with his Father. You see, the way we know that Jesus' burden is light and easy is because because of the burden he took on his shoulders to give it to us. And how on the cross he dies to give us the truth he longs to set us free with. Jesus, the powerful and almighty Son, only Son of the Father, does not wield with truth violently like a weapon, but lovingly to set us free. Pray with me. Our Father, we come now and we name our weariness. That we feel burdened. That we're tired of constantly needing to decide for ourselves what is true. And Lord Jesus, we hear you call to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. That you are the only harbor for weary souls. And so we come and we say we don't want to We don't want to be the one who anchors it anymore, but we want your yoke. And we want rest. And we want peace. And we want flourishing. Father, help us live in this anxious world with the confidence that we know you, the one who holds and keeps all things. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.